great to see all your smiling faces this morning. Some of you haven't seen in a bit, and good to see you this, uh, today. Uh, and for those who are listening online, uh, we know you're there. We'd love it if you'd come visit us and hang out with us. But uh, if you, uh, we're just glad you are taking some time to put God's Word in your heart uh, electronically. So um, welcome to you as well. Uh, we uh, started a series last week that I didn't really know was going to be a series, but it's going to be a series. And uh, in a couple of weeks from now, my friend Derek Wilhelmus will be here. Uh, he'll be ta- talking on this topic as well. But last week, we started talking about this word called mission. And uh, I want to continue on that this morning. Uh, we learned last week that Jesus accomplished his mission that, uh, that he came to, uh, to, to accomplish. And that was to pay the full price of the sins of the world. That meant all of my sin all of your sin, all the stuff we did in our past, paid for in full. We learned this little Greek word, tetelestai, meaning paid in full. Not, you know, not Jesus dying on the cross saying, oh, it's finished, you know, I'm dead. It's like, no, 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 it was this victorious, it's paid in full. I accomplished what I came to do. And it's good news for, it's good news for me. It's probably good news for you as well. If you start thinking about all the stuff behind you that's been forgiven. And what that means when it's paid in full is there's no need for shame and there's no need for guilt. There's no need for the enemy to drag up things from your past and try and make you carry them in, into your future. It's paid in full. And we uh, need to remind him of that. And so last week, the, the topic was mission. It's finished. It's accomplished. Today, the title is mission. It ain't over. Because we know that Jesus accomplished his part of the mission, but he didn't take us straight to heaven as soon as we were saved. We, we're still here. Uh, and so there's a couple thoughts. Last week we realized that he conquered sin so we could live in freedom from it and in victory over it. And uh, he conquered death so that we could in, uh, live one day in eternity, but to live his kind of life now. And so I want to encourage you and hope you've had the opportunity this week, this past week, to just live in the victory that he paid for. Uh, these thoughts really began to come to me early on in July. I was on vacation, and uh, there were certain things that just kept coming back to my mind. I felt like I definitely need to share it with me and probably share it with some of you as well. And so the one thought we, we started with last week is this, uh, is a statement by C.T. Studd. It said, there's only one life, and it's, it's just, this is an old saying. You know it by that word, twill. We don't use that word anymore, but he, he says, only one life, twill soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. As I thought about that often, I kept asking myself, how, how am I doing with that, really? How, how am I doing with this thought of um, the things that I look back in my life that I've done for Christ? Because those are the only things that are going to last, you know, uh, uh, and that I look back on later and realize those are the things that were worth, worth doing. How, how am I doing with that? Who am I going to be taking to eternity with me because of the decisions that I made here? How am I doing with that? What have I done today that will matter for eternity? And I've been trying to answer that question, you know, either uh, verbally or in action, you know, every single day. What am I doing today that will matter for eternity? And then the question, how are we doing as a church with that? Not as like just Kingsway the crowd, but as individuals, how are we doing with that? And so I want to talk a little bit about that this morning. And I want to start with this. Have you ever given someone a job and then you come back and find out they never finished it? You know, if you're a parent of young children, you should have your hand up, you know, because 
I don't know if it's like me, but every time we go to the washroom, even this morning again, reminded that my children forget to finish their business. There's always a surprise left there for us. You're like, which one of you did this, right? And it's like, would you just flush? Would you just finish the job you started? And then those kids grew up to become teenagers. And if you have teenagers, you know, you send them to clean the room. I can't see the floor. You come back and you see the teenagers uh, in the room. Yeah, you can see the floor. But all of a sudden, they're like on their phone or they're texting or they're just gone. You know, they, they disappeared. And you're like, man, you know, I just wish they would finish their job or maybe finish their homework or, or whatever it is. But these unfinished jobs, well, just to comfort you, if you're a parent of teenagers that are like that or young children, they do grow up and get jobs. I found proof. They could become billboard painters. Um, they could become bridge builders. Uh, they could become house painters because there's lots of those kind of jobs out there that, uh, that are unfinished. And, you know, it's like that saying uh, that if you want something done right, you need to... <laughs> the, the left parents around here, right? If you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. Uh, I love to think about that when it's other people's unfinished business, but too often this is the t-shirt that I should be wearing, you know, the king of unfinished pro- projects. I, I look around my house and I realize, oh yeah, there's stuff that I started that I just didn't finish, but I'd rather focus on what everybody else didn't finish. And when I thought, when I thought about that, you know, this, this, uh, thought, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. I realized that Jesus didn't think that way. And so this morning, uh, as we look at, at his uh, mission for us, we realize that he accomplished his part of the mission, but he didn't accomplish ours. And so if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew, uh, that's the first book of the New Testament, if you're familiar with that. Uh, it's right in the middle, and, or you can grab it on your phone. Uh, but Matthew Matthew was a real guy. He was a tax collector back in uh, 2,000 years ago. People did not like tax collectors back then. And then Jesus and a few of his followers are walking through, and they see this tax collector at a booth. And all of a sudden, Jesus does the worst thing that his buddies could ever, ever hope for. He says uh, to Matthew, he says, hey, come follow me. Come join, come join my posse. Come be a disciple. And they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? This guy, like everybody's going to hate us if we got a tax collector with us. But such a powerful thought is that as Matthew was invited to follow Jesus, his life changed and he got a new job. He began to do something different and he followed Jesus around and he was an eyewitness and an ear witness of all that Jesus said and what Jesus did. And he began to write a narrative of what he had seen Jesus um, do and what he had heard Jesus say. And he wrote this narrative to help others understand who Jesus was and what he was all about. And so he writes in Matthew chapter 16, He writes this story that uh, we have the chance to read now as a result. His changed life has caused the opportunity for other lives to be changed. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're in this place called Caesarea Philippi. And so I got a picture of that. It's a real place. Caesarea Philippi was named after Caesar. And uh, this area was like a really spiritual area and kind of a little bit spooky too. Like this, uh, this hill had these... These, these holes that went into it, and there was water running in there, and nobody knew, you know, anybody who went in never came out. So they didn't know where they went, but they just never came back out. And so there was a bunch of temples set up here, three different ones, to worship the, what they called the gates of Hades. It was the gates of hell. You went through there, you never came back. And so Jesus is walking with his disciples here, and he's seeing all these religious institutions, and he, uh, they're, they're probably talking about, you know, Caesarea being named after Caesar, and, and Caesar was called the son of a god. He, was, uh, he had deified, you know, the people had deified him and thought he's the son of a god. And so Jesus begins asking his disciples some questions. He's like, hey, you know what? Speaking like the sons of God stuff, who do, who do people say that I am? 
And some of them are like, well, you know, some people say, you know, you're like Jeremiah or like Moses or like a prophet. You're, you're a prophet. And then he asks the question, he says, well, well, who do you say that I am? That's a good question for every disciple to, to think about. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, Peter puts up his hand and everybody's like, oh, great. Here goes Peter again, right? He never gets it right. And Peter's like, I know. He's like, okay, Peter. Uh, and Peter says, he says, you're the, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. You're the Christ. And everybody's kind of flabbergasted because Jesus is like, you're right, Peter. And he's like, yeah, I'm right. And then he says this, but, but Peter, it's not, you know, it's not just you thinking that up. He's like, you know, don't, do you realize that it's, that wasn't your thought? Heavenly Father revealed that to you. He's like, oh, man, I almost got He's like, no, no, you still got it right. You heard, you're hearing who, um, the voice of your father. He's saying, this is who I really am, the son of God. And then so in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus' response to Peter is this. And so he says, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. So they're in Caesarea Philippi by this big rock where all these church buildings were being built. But he said, you know what? On this rock, I'm going to build my church. That rock of of knowing uh, who Jesus is, that he's the son of God, that he's the Messiah, the savior of the world. And he says, and all the powers of hell, and that word is all the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, you know, all these things they're looking at, that's not going to stand against it. And you could just imagine the disciples. Here they are. They're at this place where they're thinking about like the, the gates of hell and, and these this powerful things. And here's Jesus like, I'm going to build something so powerful that not even the gates of hell are going to stand against it. And they're like, well, if the gates of hell can't stand against it, well, then Rome can't stand against it either. Right? This, is, like, this is awesome. He's, I, don't know what, I don't know what this church thing is. And the words ecclesia, it's this gathering of people. He said, I'm not going to build a building. I'm going to build this gathering of people that will be so powerful Nothing's going to stand against it, not even the gates of hell. And in their heads, they're thinking, sweet, we are going to take over the Roman Empire. We are going to be it. And that thought is always in their mind. We're going to, Jesus is going to build this church. Jesus, you build that. We just want to be a part of it. Well, if you fast forward to the end of Matthew's narrative, you find out that they didn't have no idea how Jesus was going to do that. No idea at all. You know, as Jesus, at the end of the narrative, you, you see that Jesus had died. And everybody's like, oh, man, game over. Then he rises from the dead, and they're like, wait a second, no one's done that. Like, this is even more powerful. Then Jesus spends 40 days with them, teaching them different things and showing that he's alive. And then he's about to go back to heaven, and he's got them all around, and he's about to, to leave the plan. He says, you know, I'm, I'm heading out of here. I got a few thoughts. And they're like, wait, what? What do you mean you're heading out of here? Like, you're supposed to build a church, remember? You said, we're going to build a church, you know, and the gates of hell can't stand against you. You know, like, we're going to be, like, rough and tough and... And what are you doing? You're leaving. And he's like, yeah. He says, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church, and here's how. Matthew 28, he gives this command to them. And Jesus said, uh, Jesus came and spoke to them in verse um, 18. He says, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. When you hear all authority, they're like, okay, yeah, you rose from the dead. You've got power over death even. Okay, we believe you. So We'll, we'll listen to whatever you said. And so he says, because all authority, I have all authority. Here's my job for you. Here's my mission for you. In verse 19, he says, go. Go. Because I have all authority, go therefore and make disciples. Why does he say go? Because where they were, he's like, they're not here right now. The disciples that you got to make, they're not here. You got to go somewhere and make disciples of all the nations. A disciple, it's not a word we use very often. We do here at Kingsway, but we use this word in North America called Christian. You know, and that's not what Jesus was saying. We're going to look at that uh, a little bit more in the next uh, couple of weeks. But he said, I want you to make disciples. 
I don't want you to just go and make, you know, Christians. I want you to go make disciples. And the word disciple, just in its simplest form, is that you're a student, you're an apprentice, or you're a follower. If you've ever been an apprentice, you know, you become an apprentice to become like your teacher, right? You don't, you don't go, like, become a, a, a plumber a, or apprentice plumber, and then, you know, uh, afterwards you end up being like an electrician or a pastor, right? That's not how it works. You go there, and the, the idea is that you would learn from the teacher. You would become more like them. You'd begin to think and act and, and um, uh, look and, and uh, even, even look like the teacher. And that's what he says. A disciple should be people who actually followed what Jesus said. What he says, that's what I'm going to do. They would actually do what he said, and they would begin to look, talk, and act more like Jesus. And he says, so go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded. What does that mean? He's like, teach them to carefully attend to, to learn the things I've commanded. Teach them these things. And, and the thought is to remain a follower. Teach them to remain a follower, not just have a name or a different place they're going to hang out on Sunday mornings, to be a follower of Jesus. And they're like, well, what commands are you talking about? Like the ones like love one another so that everyone else can see, wow, these people are different. And he says the end, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm like, okay, Jesus, sounds good, but what about this building the church? He's like, I'll build my church, you go make disciples. I'll go build my church, you go make disciples. Well, Mark and Luke, two other guys who were around at that point, had talked to the followers of Jesus, were around a lot of the things that happened. They also made mention of other times when Jesus gave similar commands. And he said this in Mark 16. Mark wrote it this way. He says, then he told them, go into all the world. Put some things in yellow because here's where you see the common things. Go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. In Acts 1.8, Luke writes about it and says, but you will receive power. This is Jesus' words. You'll receive power when Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. You're going to be telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and where? To the ends of the earth. So here's the command. It's pretty, it's pretty simple. Go into all the world. Tell them about me. Tell everyone about me. Well, Luke gives us an update on how they actually did with this job, and we find it in his journal. He kept a journal as he was traveling, and we have that journal. We know it to be called the Book of Acts. He wrote in, the, in his journal in Acts chapter 2, here's where they start doing it. Peter preaches in Jerusalem, and 3,000 people get added to the church in a day. That's a pretty good sermon. 3,000 people, all of a sudden, one day. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John see God heal a crippled man through their hands. They, they, they watch a, a miracle happen in front of them, and a whole bunch of other people see it as well. And so they turn that into an opportunity to preach. And in Acts chapter 4, we realize now that there's 5,000 people who believe. 3,000 to 5,000 just in a short time. And you can just, just picture Peter and John like, hey, man, we're really doing it, eh, buddy? Like, we're making disciples. They're, they, they see it. They're like high-fiving each other. They think everything's going well. And they think, we're doing the mission. We're really doing the mission. But what was the mission? Go on to all the world's all nations, to the ends of the earth, go everywhere. As we read through the chapters of Acts, you find that after two years, they're still in Jerusalem. They hadn't gone anywhere but Jerusalem. And, and, and uh, as they're high-fiving and backslapping each other, what they really needed was a butt-whooping. And as uh, to just some extra motivation to kind of get them going. And so uh, I remember being at Andy Stanley's conference this year, and he kind of described this moment like this. It's not in the scripture, but he says, can you not picture that as, as Jesus goes back to heaven, he says, hey, I'm starting a movement, now move, now go. 
And then he, they start going. They go into all Jerusalem. And, and then he goes to heaven. And two years later, him and, him and the father are looking down like, okay, yeah, father, I went. I, I, I did what I was supposed to do. I died on the cross. I started the church. I started the movement. They're just not moving anywhere. They're just stuck in that one place. And like, what are we going to do? And they look around and they find this guy. And they're like, let's get that guy. Saul of Tarsus. That guy's like a human wrecking ball. Let's get him. And, and they're like, yeah, but you know he hates you, right? Yeah, I know he hates me. You know, and he hates all my, all my followers. He hates everything they're doing, but let's get him. And so they get Saul of Tarsus to go. And what, what does Saul do? He starts persecuting the church. He starts persecuting so that disciples start going everywhere. They go to all different areas as a result. And what do they do? When they flee from Jerusalem, they take this message with them wherever they go, and they begin sharing these stories. And then after he gets them all to spread, he's like, okay, we're not done with Saul, but we're done with that part. And so what happens? Jesus meets Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, changes his life. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And as, as much as he was against the church, he now becomes for the church. And he begins to go out and, and share the gospel. And what we also realize is this, that as a result of them chasing the disciples away, we find that the original disciples still stayed in Jerusalem, but we hear stories of others. These guys named Philip, this guy named Barnabas, this guy named Titus and Timothy and Luke and John, Mark and James, people who weren't original followers now out sharing their stories. What does that tell me? That the disciples went and made disciples who went out and made disciples who made disciples who made disciples until 2,000 years ago, here we sit in the possibility that there would be disciples. Well, there were things that hindered those early disciples, things that hindered them from completing the mission, from finishing the job. And I know that there's things that hinder current disciples from finishing the job that Jesus started and called us to do. And so I want to share a couple of those thoughts with you this morning. I put them in, I put them in a few letters, so maybe you'll be able to remember them better, maybe write them down. But the letters are C, D, E, and F. And so here we go. Four points in a three-point sermon. But here we go. C, things that hinder us, things that hinder me, the comfort zone. The comfort zone. It's so, it's so simple. You know, was, uh, when Jerusalem was a real comfort zone for those early disciples. You know, they were good Jewish boys. They were raised to live their whole lives. Their mom raised them up. You know, you boys, you be good and don't be around none of them heathens. Don't be going and hanging out with no Gentiles. And they're like, okay, mom, okay, mom, all their life. Then, you know, God had even commanded them, don't go anywhere near the Gentiles. And so then they start following Jesus. And what does he do? He says, now, okay, now go to the Gentiles. I'm like, you know, we, we can't go to the Gentiles. We're not supposed to go to the Gentiles. And, and that's not comfortable. And so what did they do? They stayed in Jerusalem. And we're given glimpses. We don't quite understand that. We live in a multicultural society. We don't quite understand what it, what it was like for them. But we see in Acts, it was difficult. Because what did Jesus say to Peter? He said, Peter, I want you to go. Go to the Gentiles. He's like, okay, I'll go to the, I, I don't think I can go to the Gentiles. And then he's like, okay, let's send them some dreams Gives him dreams three times, saying, go to the Gentiles. He's like, uh, okay, uh, maybe. And then all of a sudden he sends guys to knock on Peter's door. Hey, Peter, we're Gentiles, and we're going to take you to the Gentiles. And finally, Peter goes and preaches to the Gentiles, and amazing things happen as a result. But it took some motivation. Why? Because the comfort zone is, is difficult to leave. And I can tell you this. As a disciple who's supposed to make disciples, it's, uh, Jesus never promised that it would be comfortable. It would not, not, never promise it would be comfortable, but it will be worth it. A couple um, weeks, maybe a month ago, I, I got the chance to, my buddy took me to um, the Blue Jays game in Boston, and uh, we got to fly first class. I don't know if you've ever flown first class before, but that is like, 
That is pretty amazing. I don't know how I'm ever going to fly any other way. But as I, we were in the front row of first uh, class, and, and uh, I, I found out why they put that curtain across, you know, f- uh, between first class and regular people, because they don't want you to see all the awesome stuff you get in first class. You know, you get one little bag of cookies or dried out peanuts or whatever in the back. They just have like baskets of stuff at the front, and they just walk up to you and hand it to you and anything you want multiple times throughout the journey. They like, they, anytime you want to drink, anytime you want anything, they bring it over to you. It's like, it's incredible. They like, we just want to do whatever we can to make your flight comfortable. That flights are never comfortable. And I thought, man, all the leg room, it was just, it, it was incredible. They give you the blanket, the pillow. We flew back late at night. They give you a warm drink and they tuck you in. And it's like, it leads, it, it's, it was so great. What does it lead to? It leads to sweet sleep. I can't sleep in a moving vehicle. I definitely can't sleep in a plane, but I slept there. I pity the person after me because I had to sit in my drool-like pool uh, that was left on that seat because it was a good sleep on the way home. And man, it was like because of the comfort, right? Sleeping on a plane is one thing. Sleeping on the job is another. Uh, I used to make I used to make fun of shift workers. I know that's that's creative, eh? <laughs> Some of you Dutch guys just came up with a great idea. You know, uh, but I, uh, I, used to, I used to make fun of these guys who'd come to them. They'd say, oh, yeah, we work at the, you know, industry, and they make steel. I'm not going to say where they work, but it's close to here. And they'd say, you know, how much time they would sleep while they're at work. And I'd be like, what? You guys sleep when you're supposed to be working. No wonder our cars are so expensive. They're paying you to sleep, so the steel prices go up. And every, I was just like, oh, it's so frustrating. And then I realized that stock came to me. What if I'm doing the same thing? What if as a church, what if as a person on the mission that Jesus put me on, what if I'm doing the same thing? What if I'm actually sleeping on the job? Being on vacation for a while, you kind of get into vacation mode sometimes, and it's hard to snap out of. You know, you, like, you, you, you know that there's like a, a normal that you're supposed to be in, but it just seems like, oh, it's kind of difficult to get out because you're used to like, oh, just comfortable. My thought, too, and what I was really challenged with is, like, maybe Christianity has become too comfortable for for me. Maybe it's become too comfortable for us. Maybe as a church, you see these comfortable seats that you get to sit in and think, oh, this is comfortable. But maybe that becomes a rocking chair for your spirituality, that 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 becomes what your, the the, the total um, sum of your spirituality is sitting in a chair on a Sunday morning. See, when Jesus went out and said, hey, I want you guys in the early church, here's my idea of church. Disciples, go make disciples. And you guys teach them to make more disciples. How did that ever evolve into, hey, let's go to a church. Let's pay a guy to do, some, to do all the work of ministry. Let's pay that guy to do that. If it's good, we'll put money in the plate. Hopefully we can keep him going one more week and you know, we'll come back. And hopefully we were fed. And that's kind of the sum of our spirituality. You know, that's what's happened. And it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be, because what happens with, with being comfortable, it leads us to complacency, and we become satisfied with where we are at. We're like, yeah, I'm in church. I'm good. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. He saved me. I'm forgiven. I'm good. And what happens, we forget that there's others around us out in our world who were just like we were before we ever ended up with him. There's, there's young teenagers who are struggling with self-esteem, struggling with suicidal thoughts, not sure if they have any purpose, not sure if there's even a point to being alive, not, not sure if anybody actually cares about them, wondering, you know, God, is there a God? And if there is, what does it matter? There's, there's young women out there who've gone through horrible things, gone through abortion or gone through, you know, uh, abuse. We know the statistics tell us that the, the numbers are high. 
carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, wondering, you know, is there any, where can I go with the shame that I feel? And they came, you know, the, the, for some of you, you came to a place where you found and met the Savior and realized, wow, my life can be something different. And we forget that there's others who are just like us. We forget about the guy whose marriage is falling apart. We forget about the ones who are facing things that they feel impossible, the ones who feel purposeless, the ones who feel unloved, addicted, guilt-ridden, ashamed, and above all, empty. My question is, what if the someone, for me it was a Sunday school teacher, what if it was the someone, a Sunday school teacher, a teacher, a friend, a co-worker, had stayed in their comfort zone rather than reaching out to you when you were in that mess? Where would we be? Where would we be? I don't want to get sucked into the trap of the comfort zone. And I don't feel like I'm preaching to you this morning as much as I'm preaching to me. The fact of that, I don't want to be trapped in the comfort zone. Why? Because it ain't over. We've got a mission to accomplish. Things that hinder us, number one, is the comfort zone. Has your Christianity become too comfortable? The second is, is D for distraction. Distraction. Some of you are easily distracted, as, as I am as well. Distraction prevents us from giving our full attention to something else. I was looking up some of these things, and man, this, this point actually took me a couple hours. If you ever want to waste a whole lot of time or just be really distracted, go, go on Google sports free throws in basketball. And you see these guys who, uh, in the, in the, especially in college ball, they have these things where this guy's trying to shoot at that net, and behind him you got Steve Urkel, a brick, a bear, some guy yelling, all these faces and whatever. It's like, how are they supposed to, how are they supposed to land that? But what they learn is they, they learn to, to realize that no matter what, is on the other side of that basket, just focus on that basket. No matter what else is trying to grab your attention, focus on the one thing. And I mean, they've gotten really creative. There's a guy uh, in um, one of the universities, I believe Duke University, they call him Speedo Guy. There's no picture because I do not want you guys to have to have that in your, uh, that image in your, in your brains today. But Speedo Guy was incredibly famous because he was incredibly effective. He would make everyone else sit down and then he'd start dancing away in his speedo while these guys are trying to make these shots. The end of the story is that he turned that around, he became a pastor, and now he's using his speedo for the Lord. But, but uh, it's good for baptisms, I bet. But, you know, he, he uh, the distractions, they're, they're so easy and we, we all face them. I remember being on the golf course this week. We were golfing for the... Uh, Holden Pregnancy Care Center on the first holes. We got birdie, birdie, birdie. I'd shot a couple of birdies. It was pretty sweet with some help of my teammates. But I had putted these two putts. And then, and then all of a sudden, we're on hole number four, and, and then Rhonda shows up. And if you know Rhonda, not this Rhonda, the uh, other Rhonda from the Holden Pregnancy Care Center, she's driving her golf cart like a crazy lady. She drives up to our hole. I'm just about to putt, and she yells, four! And I'm like, you only yell four if the ball's like way up in the air and going to hit someone, and totally threw me off. So much so that I missed every putt for the rest of the day. And I blame her. We would have won that tournament if it wasn't for Rhonda. But distraction, it happens so, so simply. And we all experience distraction at some point. I found this. The, the weapons of mass distraction affect so many of us. You know, and some of you, you're battling distraction right now. You're like, there's things going on. You hear different sounds. There's things that distract you from the one thing you should be focused on. Some, uh, some have so much going on in your life right now. See, there came a distraction. She just walked in. Uh-huh. So that's the, uh, I, you just say, that's how it works. It's like all of a sudden the heads are like, oh, a person. <laughs> yeah. I've not seen one of those before. It's so easy. But some of you in your lives are so busy 
that you're not even sure what the distractions are anymore. You're not sure what the main thing is or what's the distraction. Yesterday, yesterday I was getting ready for, for this, this weekend's messages. I was working on preparing the message. I'm working on some stuff for VBS. I'm like, oh, I gotta get ready for VBS, but I gotta get ready for the message. Oh, and then I gotta do some of this other, uh, these other videos I'm supposed to be watching for, um, for a course we're doing later. And, and then all of a sudden my son walks in, Lincoln. He's like, hey, Dad, we're having a birthday party for Maddox's blue blankie up in his room. I'm like... <laughs> birthday party for Blue Blanky, and he's like, you know, he's like, and there's gonna be cake, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I, I, I can't do that right now, right, and so he walks out a little later on, Maddox comes down, and he's like, hey, hey, dad, the party's almost starting, I'm like, he's like, the birthday party for Blue Blanky, you know, it's gonna start, I'm like, oh, you know, okay, son, you, you just go start without me, you can finish without me too, right, just, just go, and then I'll, they send Finner down, I mean, Finner, puppy-eyed Finner walks in, he's like, dad, party for Blue Blanky starting right now, and it's a sleepover. And I'm, I'm like, oh, man. I begin to think about it. I thought, you know what? I could write thousands of sermons over my lifetime. How many times am I going to get to go to a birthday party for a Blue Blanky? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go. So I went upstairs, and they had made, Lincoln made his first banana bread, and they had all the tables out in the bedroom and the dishes everywhere, and so we're sitting there, and then uh, we sang happy birthday to the Blue Blanky, and, and then, yeah, the video, you should see it. It's crazy. So then, all of a sudden, then I'm like ready to go. I'm like, Dad, but there's presents. I'm like, presents for the blue blankie all right so I watched blue blankie open his presents and he got a teeny tiny little blue blankie of his own it was just it was just really really cool but you know what the, the, the smiles on my kids faces made me realize I almost missed out on what was really the most important part of yesterday that chance to spend that kind of time with my kids that's that, that's not gonna that might, they better not as teenagers come welcoming me to a, you know inviting me to a birthday party for blue blankie what are we doing making memories and for some of you parents I know life is busy but sometimes that is the most important thing and what you thought was a distraction was actually the thing you need to be doing and so often there's things that take us off of what we what we're supposed to be focused on and finding out what are the, what's the most important thing right now and this idea of being a disciple and making disciples has been super important You know, it's not new, this idea of distractions. The enemy tried to distract Jesus. Back in the desert, he said, hey, you know, make some food. You're hungry. And he's like, you know what? Man doesn't live by bread alone. Okay, all right. Okay, how about we go base jumping off the temple, Jesus? He's like, you know what? We don't, uh, you know, I'm not going to test the Lord my God. And then he's like, okay. And you know the devil gives up at that point. He's like, okay, just bow down and worship me then. You know that's never going to happen. And you see Jesus realizing, no, no, I I have something I'm focused on. I'm not going to ruin it over this. Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, you guys started so well, but what happened? You got distracted, something's happened to you. Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, you know what, I forget all the things that have gone on behind me. I'm not looking to my past. I focus on one thing, and that is what is ahead of me, and I keep pressing on for the goal. Distraction causes you to end up in the wrong places. If you're driving, you know, and looking at your phone, you can end up in a ditch. Yeah, or worse, you know, parked in a culvert and wondering how you got there. Uh, I was driving to Charlie's and Sharon's for, uh, I forget, I was going there. I had uh, my kids in the back, and, and I'm driving, and I'm sure, like, I'm just going to blame it on them and playing with their fidget spinners. Hey, Dad, look what my fidget spinner can do. It can spin, right? I hate those things. But we're driving, and all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm driving from Townsend to their house, and I'm like, all, all of a sudden, I see, like, no frills. I'm like, wait a second. Like, I've made that trip every week. Like, I know I can do it in my sleep. And all of a sudden, I'm realizing because I'm distracted, I missed where I was going. And I ended up in a place that I didn't really want to be at that point. I wanted to be at Charlie and Sharon's place. I found that that can happen in our lives, that we can end up in places that we didn't want to be because we lose our focus on what's really important. 
So many times we find ourselves in, in, in marriages that are in trouble because we didn't focus on them. Finding ourselves in relationships with our kids that are broken because we did focus on them. Finding sometimes that we just weren't focused on our, our mission and we get distracted by simple things like clicking on different links on your computer that lead you to places you just didn't want to be. Too often if we lose our focus on what's most important, we end up where we don't want to be. And I felt the Lord speaking to my heart the challenge to go back. As I turned around at no frills, did a U-turn, don't know if that was legal, but I did. And I went back to, to, I went back. I went back to where I was supposed to be. John wrote to the churches, early churches in Revelation. He said to the church in Ephesus, go back to your first love. You guys were doing so good. Just go back to what, the love that you had at first. To Sardis, he told them, go back to what you heard and what you believed at first. Go back. And I really felt him putting in my heart, Kingsway, you've got to go back to what you started. You started with a mission to complete. You started with a mission that uh, is out on the sign there. How many of you read the sign on the way in this morning? It hasn't changed in a whole lot of years, so you probably didn't read it, but how many of you know what it says on the sign? Any, any guesses? Church 24-7. Thank you. Chris, you're my favorite. Uh, yeah. Ch- church 24-7. Church 24-7 church services are at such and such a time. Why? Because that we would never forget that we are the church and we have a mission to complete out in our world. That this is not about weekend services here. For those, you know, sometimes we find like, oh man, it's so hard to find volunteers for the cafe. You know why sometimes we find it hard to find volunteers? It's because like, oh, just got to work in the cafe so all the regulars can have their free double-doubles. I got to put more money in the offering because those Dutch people drink a lot of coffee. That's not why we're here. Do you know why we have a cafe? Do you know why we even started a cafe way back in the day? Was so that there would be a place where someone would be smiling and handing something free to the guests that you invited to church. That there would be something that as you invited your friends, you knew someone's going to be welcoming at the door. Someone's going to be excited to see them. Why? Because I'm on mission with those people to reach my friends that I invited. And then with kids ministry volunteers, for some it's like, oh, how are we going to find people to work in the kids ministry? It's like, oh, man, kids ministry. It's like free babysitting on the weekend. You know, like who wants to do that? Well, we've never started with that. The reason we started kids' ministry is because we know they are the church of today and they're the leaders of tomorrow. We want them to know that they can know Jesus for themselves now so that they grow up to do their teen years and don't make some of the mistakes we made, that they can have a faith of their own, that we can impart into them incredible things and watch them lead uh, this church in the, in the next generation and not be one of those churches full of old people with wondering, where are all the kids at? It's Why? Because we're on mission to reach them. And while they're down there, their parents are up here. Because they were invited, having the opportunity to meet the Lord and know the Lord for themselves. You know, sometimes I think my job would be so easy if we just had a whole lot of perfect people and smooth services. But guess what? I'm realizing he's telling me we got to go back. These church services should be a whole lot messier because there's people here who have no idea what church is about. They just like being here. That there's people that we've invited because they have had the opportunity to come and be connected with their Heavenly Father. It doesn't matter what their past is like. It doesn't matter, you know, what kind of clothing they're wearing or what they look like or what their tattoo says about their mother. It doesn't matter because they're people who are not connected to their Heavenly Father. And where should they be? Here. We're going to do more baptisms at Kingsway. One of the things I learned uh, about me is that just realize that we do baptisms once a year at the farm. And for some of you, you're like, that's a big crowd. And I don't like crowds, so I'm not going. And what you've missed out on is the whole reason that we even exist as a church is to help connect people with their Heavenly Father and that those disciples would take the next step of being baptized. So we're going to bring the cattle trough back here. And we're going to do baptisms here. And we're going to do baby dedications here. And it doesn't matter how full this place gets. It doesn't matter because that's why we're here. 
to connect people with their Heavenly Father. There's a mission that we're supposed to be on, and it ain't finished yet. I don't want to be in the comfort zone. I don't want to be distracted. It ain't over. It ain't over. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to give you the last two steps real quick. Number, number E, uh, C, D, E, comfort zone distraction excuses. You may have excuses for everything. I love these, this T-shirt. <laughs> Speeding ticket excuses. A, I was on my way to bring you donuts, officer. B, I was racing home to watch cops. Or C, I thought you wanted to race. That's why I was speedy. You know, I've heard it said that everybody, or that, that I guess that um, uh, uh, excuses are like armpits. Everybody has two of them, and they both stink, right? So these, these thoughts that we have excuses for everything. You know, for some, you think, you know, when you hear this idea of, oh, disciples go make disciples, the thought that right away comes to your mind is like, well, that's somebody else's job. You know, that, that's why we have pastors, pastors and missionaries. That's why we pay you, Mark. You're, that's what you're supposed to do. You know, it was, we know that it was the disciples' job to make disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples. Maybe you sit here this morning, you're like, I'm too young. You know what? Paul heard Timothy with those thoughts. He said, you know what, Timothy, don't let anybody ever tell you you're too young. You go be the example of the whole church in this. You go show them what it's like to be a disciple and make disciples. For some, you're like, I'm too old. You know, I already did my time. I've already done that part. If you're still here, you're not too old. If you're still here, you're not too old. I love how in, in, a, in the time where the Israelites went to go take the nation of, of Israel the, for themselves, there's an old man there named Caleb. He'd waited 40 years. He's 80 years old at this point. And what does he say to Moses as they're going? He's like, you know what? Give me the mountains. Give me the toughest part because I've waited this long. I'm still God. I want it. Never too old. For some, you're like, well, I haven't been a Christian long enough. If you've been a Jesus follower for a day, you know one thing. <laughs> you know one thing that others need to know. What it's like to say, I'm going to leave the life that I live behind and I'm going to follow a new master and I can explain the amazing things that have happened in my life, how I feel as a result. Maybe you're like, well, I'm just, I'm just not there yet. You know, I got to get my, there's, I got to learn a little bit more. You know what, where is there? Where is there? He's saying, you know, as a disciple, you can make a disciple. If you're a follower of Jesus, you can make disciples. And it's simply this idea of encouraging and teaching and helping others with what you already know. You're like, well, I don't know a lot. Then don't teach a lot. Just teach them what you know. And then get involved in a small group and learn some more. Because what we realize is, it's not about us. It's not about what I've done or what I have to offer. It's about what he's done and what he has to offer those excuses. Last one's this, F, the fear of response. The fear of response is one of the things that's affected me the most over my life. You know, there was a slogan, no fear. For me, it was like the fear of no. And I remember there's conversations where sharing my faith with others. I remember meeting with an atheist, and he was a smart atheist. He knew the Bible, at, I'm not going to say better than me, but he knew it very, very well. He had verses and all kinds of stuff. And, you know, as we were chatting, <laughs> I told him about my faith in Christ. And at the end, he's like, seriously, you as a smart adult, believe in these childhood fairy tales? He's like, just think with me for a second. What does some human sacrifice in a desert 2,000 years ago have anything to do with today? I was like, uh, uh. And you begin to wonder, like, what am I going to do? If I say, yes, I believe in those fairy tales, he's going to think I'm not a smart adult. And if I say, you know, no, well, then am I really a follower of Jesus? And I've started to realize, you know, this, this year I turned 40 and I kept telling Beth, now I'm 40, I'm just going to say what I think. You know, it doesn't matter anymore. You know, I'm, I'm past, I'm just whatever. But it, it, I, I'm going to do that to the most positive ways possible is that I don't want to be ever in the spot where I'm afraid to say things like Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He says, the message of the 
of the cross. It is foolish to those who are perishing. They are going to think it's childhood fairy tales, but, and there's a but there, to us who are being saved, we know it's the power of God. Do you realize, I know that I am not the same person I was when I was um, uh, 16 and, and struggling with all kinds of issues and I'm not that person anymore. I'm not the person who I was back then, and it's not because I did something to change it. I met Jesus, and he changed my life. He set me on a different path. He's forgiven me, set me free from addiction. He has changed my life. So yeah, the power of the cross is real, and it can be real for you as well. You know, for some, they might think it's foolishness, but guess what? The power of the gospel still changes lives today. And it's not by outward laws and rules at church services. It's by the relationship with your heavenly Father on the inside. And so I want to challenge and encourage you as I'm challenging and encouraging me. You can remind me of this. Don't say people's no for them. Give people a chance to say yes to the gospel and to the power. I love last week, Lorraine, you shared about how you were talking about your daughter wanting to join a Bible study and saying, you know what, she's going to join a Bible study with me. That's that idea of giving somebody a chance to say yes to discipleship. My buddy Reuben in the back, living out his faith at work. We had talked about it in our small group. I know I'm not supposed to talk about that here, but I am. And uh, just because I'm so proud of you. He lived out his faith at work and just letting people know, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. And guess what? One of his coworkers, who didn't, I don't think even really realize what she was looking for, has been a part of Kingsway as a result because she came because of him living out his faith at work. There's a single mom on our Saturday nights. Her name's Bev. Uh, she was working at her job, and she saw this other woman at her job, and she said, hey, would you like to come to church with me sometime? That person, her name is June. She was here last night. She's the one, if you're on the Bible app, she's the one who spams you because she's reading so much Scripture all the time and inviting everybody she knows to join the Bible app. Why? Because somebody invited her to church. She said, I haven't been in church in 20 years. All I needed was that one chance to come back. Don't let your fear of no take away their opportunity to say yes. Who are the people around you that need to, have, need to just hear that invite? And maybe that's where you start. Just saying, hey, would you come to church with me? Well, yeah, but they're going to look at me differently at work. Yeah, they are, and it's going to be for the best. Yeah, they're going to look at me differently at school. It's social suicide to tell people I'm a Christian. You know what? Yeah, they might, and guess what? It might be uncomfortable, but it's worth it. Someone's life is on the other end of that. I can tell you that most people are not going to be offended if you invite them to church. Not, not in Canada. Most people are not going to be offended if you invite their you know, kids to VBS. And you still have time. Who are you going to invite? And the last thought is this. There might be just one person who says yes to your invitation. There might be one person whose God is working on and drawing on them. There might be one person around you who's looking for God and they just don't know it yet. So, you know, in the Mission Impossible movies, there's always that thought, your mission, if you choose to accept it, is this, this, and this. And then, you know, Jesus saying to his disciples, hey, fellas, your mission, if you choose to accept it, maybe we can put that scripture up on the, on the verse, Matthew chapter uh, 28, verse 19. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, except here's the thing. When Jesus called disciples, he never gave them the second option in that sentence. He never said, should you choose to accept it. He says, if you're going to follow me, then this is what it's all about. Therefore, you, put your name in there. Go, go. Because why? Because they're not here yet. Go out from Kingsway because they're not here yet. Go and make disciples. Go tell them what you know. Go tell them what Christ has done in your life. Don't worry about what their response is. You just go and tell them. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the last thing it says is this. Teach these new disciples to obey the commands. Teach them to, to live out their faith and that, I, and, uh, that I've given you. And be sure of this. I'm with you always. He's not sending you out there on your own. So I'm with you always. We're doing this together. It's the great co-mission. So my challenge to me this morning is I want to do a better job of this. 
in my next 40 years. I don't want to look back and realize that I left something unfinished. What he's called us to do is to go and make disciples. There'll be, there'll be great opportunities over the next number of weeks to join small groups and join ways and find uh, opportunities. There's a great opportunity for you to start this tomorrow by saying, hey, there's some kids in my neighborhood who could really, you know, they really need VBS. I know they need Jesus, so hopefully they're going to find it at VBS. Would you take that opportunity to do something? So my question we started with is where I end. What are you going to do today that's going to matter for eternity? That's the question for me. It's a question for us as a church because we've been called to fulfill a mission and it ain't over yet. For some of you here this morning, you know you're not a follower of Jesus. Not really. You come to church, but you're not actually a follower of Jesus. You, you, you don't do what he said. For some of you, you're here this morning and you don't really know. You're like, you're like what? There's a God who loves me? He really cares about me. Maybe you're finding that out for the first time. Can I tell you something? He really does. And for you, maybe you're like, oh, if there's a God, he's going to be angry at me. I got all this stuff that I've done that he's going to be upset about. Guess what? He says to you, I've already taken care of that. I've already forgiven you if you would just receive that forgiveness. All it takes for you is say yes to him. Say, God, you know what? Okay, if you can clean that up, if you can take that, then yeah, I'll follow you. It says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You have that opportunity this morning. I challenge you to take it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's alive and powerful. Holy Spirit, I've done my best to preach this with the the zeal that you've put in my heart. I pray you do what I can't. Would you sow this word deep into the heart and spirit of us as your kids and as your church, that we would not be caught sleeping, but that we would, with you, go out into our world to shine in the darkness, to speak life where there isn't, to speak hope where there's hopelessness. God, help us to allow people to see you in and through our lives. They need you. Help us to to see those in our families even and around us every single day and not to be distracted or miss the the moments. Thank you for for what you've done in our lives. We are extremely grateful for that. We've got thousands and thousands of reasons to praise you, and today we're glad to celebrate you as we go from this place for you, in your name, and with you. Amen.